That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. Hey, friends. Thanks for joining a podcast. I want to tell you about something really new and exciting called Patreon.com slash BP Show. It's a great way to get uh, exclusive interviews with newsmakers, voicemails, personalized videos, political commentary, and early access to a special podcast called The Making of Bernie Sanders. Go to patreon.com slash BP show. Patreon.com slash BP show. Giving you everything you need to fight the Trump administration. This is The Bill Press Show. Live at youtube.com slash The Bill Press Show. Good morning. Welcome to The Bill Press Show. I'm Sabrina Siddiqui, political reporter at The Guardian, filling in for Bill this Monday morning. New day, new week, maybe a new dawn in the White House as Steve Bannon is out. That was the big news from Friday, and we will be dissecting whether or not there is a pivot. Spoiler alert, there is no pivot. There never will be a pivot I am joined by my good friends here at the Bill Press Show, Jamie Benson. Good morning, Jamie. Good morning, Sabrina. Was a new dawn a attempt at a pun with the eclipse? It was not. Oh, okay. I actually am the worst about You're the just eclipse. in the... I didn't even realize. I didn't even remember it was today. Yeah, today's <laughs> the big glasses, day. I don't have glasses. August so 21st. I can't look in the sky. I don't know what's going to happen. Uh, Rachel Pekarski is also here, and so is Monique Kanzler, who, of course... Makes us look good on camera. We've got the eclipse. We've got Bannon. Maybe it's all related. We will be breaking down all of that and more. But first. This is the Full Court Press. Just a couple of other stories for you on this Monday morning. That's right. Today is the big day. The solar eclipse Mm. here in North America. The first time since 1979. It's a pretty big deal. Yes. And in fact, it's actually going to, uh, it's, a, it's a big ribbon down North America, down the country, right? Uh, it will cast a shadow through 14 states. It begins precisely at 1.16 p.m. Eastern Time in Lincoln City, Oregon. And then it'll move diagonally across the heartland and exit over Charleston, South Carolina, where, spoiler, Peter Ogburn is right now. So Ooh, is he I just gave that away to, to see the eclipse? He is there. And oh. I believe Bill is in Oregon. So basically everyone's... So Bill, Bill's at the start I'm like the fill-in because everyone is out to see the eclipse. Yeah. That's what the story is. I think I'm just going to be in my office. What time is it even hitting Washington, D.C.? We're the two suckers. From what I understand, uh, it's around 145, 150 that it's going to be prime uh, viewing in mm. D.C. However, mm. it's nothing like what they're going to see in states like Oregon and South Carolina because that's really where you're going to see the full eclipse. Uh, but it, all of North America will at least get a partial eclipse. And as of this morning, weather, as far as that ribbon goes across the country, looking good in, in every one of those cities and states. So big day here for the solar eclipse. Big day. Get your eclipse goggles. Big day for the solar eclipse. Hey, if you are a lottery player, some good news for you. The Powerball jackpot has now jumped to $650 million. 
Uh, on Saturday night, the $541.9 million Powerball jackpot numbers were read, and there was no winner. The Powerball uh, was 13. So, um, pretty big deal here with the Powerball getting up that big. Have you ever played lottery, Sabrina? I've never played lottery, and I can't say I've ever really understood the appeal. I guess winning, like, the amount of money you just mentioned is probably the appeal, but... Well, Bill loves it. Bill Bill will... Of course he Anytime does. the Powerball makes the news, Bill is going right down to the 7-Eleven to buy a lottery ticket. He's a Powerball junkie? He is. It, Powerball played in 44 states, D.C. Doesn't the IRS take away most of the money anyway? I guess. I, I, I don't really know what the chunk is, but I'm sure there's a lot of disappointment as you get uh, as you, when you actually get the check. The check. Some news uh, from the Kennedy Center. We learned over the weekend that President Donald Trump and First Lady Melania mm. Trump will be skipping... This year's Kennedy Center's honors. Uh, Sabrina, in the past, this has been uh, an event that pretty much all presidents attend. Is that right? Yes, yes, yes. Uh, honoring those who've contributed to the performing arts. But the White House said that they do not want to cause a political distraction. A couple of this year's honorees had already said that they might skip the ceremony at the White House beforehand. It's sort of Trump's version of, you're not breaking up with me I'm breaking up with you. You know, that kind of happened earlier last week, too. <laughs> that happens with literally everything. With all of the councils <laughs> and the CEOs. Yeah. The CEOs leaving and Trump deciding, yeah. eh, I'm just going to get rid of this altogether. So, in fact, there was an arts commission, too, that we learned at the end of the week that he was getting rid of. Cal Penn had a viral yeah. tweet saying, Mr. President, we rejected you. You can't reject us. So, No one wants to join a losing team. Things are getting intense. Radio, on TV, and online. This is the Bill Press Show. Bye-bye, Bannon. That is the word on the street and the big picture this week as we head into, I don't know what day of the Trump administration. It feels like 1,550. I don't know. I'm just making up a number. In- How am I doing? Am I doing okay? I'm president. Hey, I'm president. Can yeah. you believe it, right? That is, that's basically us every day. That's can it. you believe it? I don't think any of us really can. Uh, Steve Bannon, of course, the co-chief strategist in the Trump White House. That was up until Friday when news surfaced that he was fired. He resigned. It depends on who you ask. Steve Bannon claims that he resigned as early as August 7th, but that the announcement was delayed, especially in the aftermath of the attacks in Charlottesville. And the White House, of course, wanting to make Donald Trump seem tough, said the president fired Bannon at the request of Chief of Staff John Kelly, who took that job just a couple of weeks ago from Reince Priebus. This is the latest high-profile departure in a string of dismissals. There was Sean Spicer, the White House press secretary, first to go last month. Following shortly thereafter was Ryan's Priebus and, dare we forget, the Mooch, Anthony Scaramucci, shortest communications director perhaps in the history of the White House, lasting just about a week before a profanity-laced interview to The New Yorker's Ryan Lizza. And now you've got Steve Bannon. But, Jamie, you know, the thing about Steve Bannon is this doesn't necessarily seem like a case of bad blood. Uh, yes, Trump was reportedly upset with the whole idea of President Bannon, that Steve Bannon is running the show. All the 
magazine covers, uh, presenting him as really the brainchild of the administration, pulling the strings behind the scenes. But it looks like Bannon will do just as much, if not more, from the outside. He's rejoining Breitbart News, where he served as the executive chairman prior to joining the Trump campaign in August of 2016, and has said that he's just as committed to the agenda as he was on day one. I mean, he can continue to influence the White House and Congress for that fact. Uh, Who knows what the next war for Breitbart really will be. In fact, I believe there was a quote this morning that's saying from Matt Boyle. Matt Boyle, what is it, chief Washington correspondent at Breitbart? Some title, something along those lines. Trump's favorite reporter in Washington. Saying that he would, uh, if Trump turns his back on their agenda, he will, Breitbart will enlist Paul Ryan to lead the charge for impeachment if, quote unquote, the globalists take over. So so <laughs> good, I mean, good luck with that. It's a lot yeah. of talk right now. We don't yeah. know actually what they can accomplish on the outside of Breitbart. But Donald Trump tweeting uh, on Friday, shortly after the announcement of Bannon leaving the White House, quote, Steve Bannon will be a tough and smart new voice at Breitbart News, maybe even better than ever before. Fake news needs the competition. I think that's that once that one line there, maybe even better than ever before, speaks a lot to what Bannon could do on the outside. Yes, and I think that those uh, who've watched the dynamic, uh, particularly between Breitbart News and the Republican Party, are preparing for a potential all-out war between you know the so-called alt-right, which feels emboldened, awakened even more so in the after Charlottesville, when a white supremacist, of course, drove his car into counter-protesters at a Unite the Right rally killing one that was 34 year old heather Heyer, who had come to stand up against hate speech and there also is a the element of competing factions within the white house so jamie as you were mentioning you've got the so-called globalists that's gary Cohn, former goldman sachs executive who is the head of the national economic council you've got hr mcmaster the national security advisor to the president of course, Jared Kushner and Ivanka Trump, I suspect Bannon at least, will be a little bit more careful knowing that if there is anyone that Trump does seem to care about, it is his daughter and son-in-law. Uh, but, I, you know, Trump did signal this was coming when he spoke Tuesday in that now infamous press conference a couple of days after Charlottesville. But he had fairly nice things to say about Bannon. He's a good man. Uh, he is not a racist. I can tell you that. He's a good person. He actually gets a very unfair press in that regard. Well, I'm glad we got that cleared up. Not <laughs> a racist. Not a racist. This is, of course, when Trump went on to put on the same footing white supremacists and protesters from the left. There's blame on both sides, and I have no doubt about it, and you don't have any doubt about it either. And, only and, and, and if you reported it accurately, you would say. If only we reported it Shame accurately. on you, Sabrina. Shame, 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 shame. The Guardian just cannot get these things right. Fake news. Crooked media. You can go through all of Trump's favorite monikers to describe um, the fourth estate. But not a racist is what he said of Steve Bannon. And certainly the opinion Uh, seems to be sound of someone who is likening the KKK to the people who showed up at that rally to stand up against the KKK. Uh, Look, Jamie, we thought that 
I wouldn't say that we had turned a new page because you don't really do that with this administration. But after taking two days to condemn white supremacists, Trump came out begrudgingly and delivered a statement that did say unequivocally that there's no room for neo-Nazis in the KKK in this country. And then, of course, not even 24 hours later at a press conference, not even a press conference, a statement that was designed to be about infrastructure. That went well. Trump, again, does an about face, arguably goes even further than he did in his initial reaction by doubling down on this notion that both sides were to blame for the violence. You had a group on one side that was bad and you had a group on the other side that was also very violent. Now... (laughs) First and foremost, it turns out that the counter-protesters did, in fact, have a permit to be there. And as we well know, look, there was one side that had arrived specifically to stand in opposition to racism, to hate, to hate groups, people who have been responsible for an uptick in hate crimes, especially since, according to some groups who track these, this information since the election of Trump. Um, but he can't seem to let it go. And I think that the reason this is important is, you know, d- we're talking about Steve Bannon's firing this morning. How much distance is there really between Trump and Bannon? I feel like anyone who is watching that press conference feels or should know that that is revealing within and of itself of who Donald Trump is. What is in his heart of hearts? It seems like he made it pretty clear on Tuesday. I'm glad you asked that because I'd like to return to that interview that Steve Bannon gave to The Prospect, right? The liberal outlet. This was, mm, I don't know, like three days before he resigned or fired or whatever you want to call it. There's one passage that caught my eye. I tweeted about it at the time, but it's still relevant today, regardless of whether or not Bannon is in the White House. The Democrats, he said... Quote, the longer they talk about identity politics, I got them. I want them to talk about racism every day. If the left is focused on race and identity and we go with economic nationalism, we can crush the Democrats. That's Steve Bannon speaking to the prospect. I think that this is going to remain a recurring theme. I think it very much will. I think Trump will continue to talk about race in very shaky terms, making himself look like a racist and making Steve Bannon, who seems to be, in some people's eyes, the the puppet master, continue to be the ultimate race baiter. And I think that's how he thinks that's the best way to get through his agenda. And you and you point that out, I think, really astutely because the conservative and I it's almost, you know, how do you even refer to conservatives versus mainstream? It's it's got the lines have been a lot more blurred especially with the rise of Donald Trump. Right. But the far right media, maybe, because, you know, certainly you have outlets like National Review and the Washington Examiner who have been a little bit more outspoken when Trump goes off um, into the dark side, as he did last week. But you have people like Ann Coulter and the right wing media celebrating his remarks on Charlottesville. And I, I think that, as you know, Trump will continue to espouse these same views whenever he is given the opportunity. If you look at the terrorist attack that transpired um, just a couple, well, a little less than a week after in Barcelona, Barcelona, it was 
within minutes that he declared it a terrorist attack, no hesitation, as opposed to Charlottesville, where he wasn't sure, should you call it a murder? Should you call it a terrorist attack? Being very uh, reluctant to label it as anything specific. And then he tweets about a myth that he used to tote around on the campaign trail about, you know, former general dipping bullets in pig's blood to commit horrific war crimes against Muslims. Not only is that story not true, uh, but that was Trump's proposal for defeating quote-unquote radical Islam, one of his favorite phrases that his predecessors declined to use because national security advisors deem it to be counterproductive. So you can see the difference right there in his response to two events. Um... Incidentally, in the terrorist attack in Barcelona was carried out by one of the more common um, methods that is now being used by those who have been radicalized or inspired by ISIS, which is to drive a van into a crowd. Well, what you saw in Charlottesville was someone drive his car into a crowd. So, you know, the labeling is important because it speaks not just to the politics here, not just to, you know, the ways in which Trump is making overtures to his base, but also his own thinking that depending on the color of someone's skin, depending on the origin of that person's name, that is what really determines whether or not that individual is a terrorist. Um, Republicans have been very outspoken about Trump's comments on Charlottesville. You had a flurry of Republican lawmakers tweet immediately denouncing uh, his response. I wanted to play what Tim Scott, a senator from South Carolina, who is the first African-American senator elected since in the South, elected since Reconstruction, had to say. As we look into look to the future, it's going to be very difficult for this president to lead if, in fact, that moral authority remains compromised. He went into office. Sometimes you have positional authority, and that is very hopeful. But the reality of it is this nation responds to moral authority. When we believe that our president has the entire nation's best interests at heart, his comments on Tuesday that erased his positive comments on Monday started to compromise that moral authority that we need the president to have for this nation to be the beacon of light to all mankind. Let's not forget, by the way, Senator Tim Scott was, uh, I mean, we talk about the Charleston shooting, right? Back in yeah. 2015. He was there. I mean, that he was there consoling right. folks. He was there with President Obama consoling folks. He knows how to uh, it, lack of a better words, heal a nation mm-hmm. after something like this, yeah. after Charlottesville and after Charleston. And he making clear there that this president has not done an effective job or not an effective job as Obama did after Charleston. Right. And of course, um, Charleston was the horrific massacre at the Emanuel AME Church when white supremacist Dylan Roof gunned down nine African-American churchgoers uh, led Nikki Haley, then the governor of South Carolina, to call for the removal of the Confederate flag from the state house grounds. That is a conversation that has once again been prompted by the violence in Charlottesville. Uh, of course, if we're going to make this about a statue, which you know some on uh, the right have tried to do, that this is more to do with protecting 
Confederate statues. Uh, you now have Democrats calling for the removal of Confederate-era statues as well as flags from not just uh, you place property around the state, capitals ar- across states across the country, but also from the U.S. Capitol. I don't think that you'll see Paul Ryan heed Nancy Pelosi's call, uh, but it does seem like Democrats want to engage on this issue. And Jamie, to, to kind of circle back to Steve Bannon's comments about Democrats wholeheartedly embracing identity politics, if that's what you want to call it, really going all in on the issue of Confederate statues. Do you think that this is the the direction uh, that is wise for Democrats to follow? I think for now, yes. I think, you know, in some ways you can look at it as they're falling right into Steve Bannon's trap, right? Mm-hmm. Continuing to talk about race, continuing to talk about monuments. And in turn, you're upsetting conservative voters who, for whatever reason, are still clinging to the past and believing that this is the most important issue to, to defend at this present moment. Meanwhile, our president is giving a primetime address tonight at nine o'clock on his decision for Afghanistan. So you really have to find a way to balance what issues to focus on. For all we know, tomorrow morning, that's all we're going to be talking about. Maybe he makes some shocking decision on Mm -hmm. Afghanistan. Maybe he pulls all of the troops or maybe he puts in a big surge in troops. So uh, it it really just depends on on the news cycle at this point. Believe it or not, in August, in a non-election year, it's been busier than ever. Remember when August was supposed to be a slow news Ugh. month? Well, not anymore. Not under this president. A uh, couple points you mentioned, Jamie. First and foremost, the issue of Democrats engaging on the issue of race. I don't think that there is any reason why they should back down from taking on the administration with respect to the way the president responded to Charlottesville. Majority of Americans do disapprove of how he has handled the the attack there and also have questioned his stability. Um, having said that, predictably, the polling is very much split along party lines. So Republicans, not as likely to think that Trump was wrong in blaming both sides, which goes back to your point about uh, the more Democrats engage, the more likely they are to shore up um, enthusiasm, if you will, on the right or rile up Trump's base. Uh, coming upon 2018 midterms, the potential miscalculation is that they just, you know, mobilize Trump's own voters to the polls. Um, having said that, uh, you know, of course, there is this issue of, I think, Trump's own base, at least being frustrated by his inability to actually stay focused on any sort of agenda. Primetime address very much seems designed Mm -hmm. to turn the page. This is for context, the culmination of a strategic review that the Trump administration ordered about U.S. policy in Afghanistan upon taking office in January. Uh, Defense Secretary Jim Mattis said that Trump wanted to address the American people on his own he, the president, met with his national security team on Friday 
And we don't know exactly what he will announce, but one can expect it will have to do with the number of troops who are still engaged in America's longest war at this point. We have been now in Afghanistan for more than 15 years. The longest war America has ever been a part of. The longest war. That's something that needs to be clearly stated. America has ever been a part of. And there is an element here where Trump is facing some of the same realities that his predecessor faced. Obama had also campaigned, at least to some degree, on scaling back some uh, military presence overseas. You learn when you're on the job, especially when you are engaged, as we said, in America's longest war. It is not as simple to withdraw troops and not necessarily have a plan moving forward. And that is the big question. What strategy will Trump outline tonight about where U.S. policy in Afghanistan goes from here? My understanding is he is not expected to announce the withdrawal of troops but potentially announce an increase in the number of troops. The one question or concern I think those of us who've been following this presidency would have is that the narrative suddenly flips and today is the day that Donald Trump became president. Yeah, no. (laughs) Reading from a teleprompter, my friends, and announcing a shift in policy that has been designed by your national security team, by the generals who work for you. That is not a shift in uh, Trump and his own leadership. No, 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 no. Uh, But because we mentioned the generals, that has actually been a question that has surfaced over the last week once more is how do you work in an administration where the president, where your boss is elevating the voices of neo-Nazis and the KKK. Um, There was an expectation that we might see, you know, a flurry of resignations, that Chief of Staff John Kelly would have to really coerce staff in the White House to stay. And interestingly enough, Jay Johnson, the former secretary for the Department of Homeland Security under Obama, said... If you work in this administration in a role where the country is very much relying on at least your stability, you should stay in place for the good of the country. Frankly, if John Kelly, uh, my friend John Kelly or my friend Jim Mattis came to me and said, I'm thinking about resigning from this White House, I'd say absolutely not. You have to stay. Uh, As John reportedly said, it's country first. And um, we need people like John Kelly, Jim Mattis, H.R. McMaster, um, to to write the ship. I hate to admit, but he's right. I, I was going to say, you know, I think that while I understand when people make this moral argument, um, I would say that you could apply it more so to people who work, let's say, in the communications department at the White House. How How do you defend the indefensible... And at what point do you realize it doesn't matter what you do in that role, the president is going to do whatever it is that he so chooses on any given day. Trump is going to be Trump. But if you are in the role of defense secretary 
DHS secretary, uh, if you're a national security advisor, I think we can all agree we would like people who are competent. Uh, we would like people at the Pentagon who know what they're doing and who have sound judgment um, and don't necessarily see the benefits of in embarking upon a nuclear war with North Korea. By the way, can I tell you what the lead story on Breitbart.com is this morning? Do tell. Uh, it ties directly into this. Uh, the title reads, Source, McMaster fails to brief Trump before that's too bad error. Okay. So this is referring to news uh, that has come out over the last 24 hours that you have uh, six, I think, soldiers who have died and about 10 missing. Is that correct? Five U.S. soldiers Five US injured, 10 soldiers are missing. Injured, my apologies. Yep. Injured and 10 missing. And the president reportedly said, that's too bad. Uh, that's you, why you have a White House pool, ladies and gentlemen. One can imagine what the reaction would be. And it gets tiring to do this. But if President Obama had ever said something remotely similar in response to uh, U.S. soldiers being injured. WWBD, what would Barack do? I think it would be a solid breaking news, round-the-clock moment for Fox News. And honestly, I think even the other networks would probably play right into it. Mm -hmm. It would be the scandal of the month, the scandal of the year. Um, it's just another day here. There's two sides the in that. Era. There's the, uh, in the Trump era, there's just so much going on that it's hard to pick what the scandal of the moment should be. Uh, and then the other side of it is with Obama because things went pretty well over eight years. The, even the smallest things became the biggest scandals. So it, it's a, it's a blessing and a curse. This, this Trump era uh, of America right now, Se uh, season, what season are we in? America I don't right even now? know. One is a season finale. That's what I think most people want to know. <laughs> hey, by the way, we are on Twitter at BP Show. Of course, Sabrina is on Twitter at Sabrina Siddiqui. Uh, we're talking about a number of things today. I'm sure we'll circle back on many of them throughout the show. So we'd love to hear from you. What do you think the Democrats' agenda should be? What do you think Trump's decision on Afghanistan is going to be tonight? Any other questions we think is worth throwing out there, Sabrina? I would love to know. Let's hear. Uh, how are you viewing the eclipse? I'd love to hear how that too. How are you too. viewing the eclipse? Where will you be? How, do you have the glasses? Where'd you get them from? For those of us who are I went trying to, to find two, them last minute, I went to two Seven Elevens this morning. Neither neither had them. I got laughed at at one of them. You got laughed mm -hmm. at. But also, look, I'm actually a little bit interested. Should people resign from the White House? Is this the tipping point? Do you or do you think that competent people should stay? Sure. Tweet us at BP Show. Tell us what you think. We will be back with a great lineup of guests. So stay tuned and keep on watching and listening to The Bill Press Show. You know, there's certainly a lot of people on the White House staff and NSC staff that uh, shouldn't be there. People like Miller and Gorka and others uh, who uh, not only, I think, represent the same thing that Steve Bannon did, but uh, aren't capable of doing the job well. Uh, so, yes, I think there's more cleaning house uh, that ought to take place. Follow us on Twitter at BP Show. This is The Bill Press Show. Same great show, new great channel. Stream live video at youtube.com slash The Bill Press Show.
Welcome back to the Bill Press Show. Sabrina Siddiqui here, filling in for Bill this morning. And joining me now in studio is Simone Pate, politics reporter for Roll Call. Good morning. Good morning. Thank you for joining us. Um, so, you know, we were breaking down so far in the show uh, the response to Charlottesville, uh, as well as previewing uh, you know, the president's address to Afghanistan tonight, whether that will be a bit of a turning point. Uh, first and foremost, because you covered uh, some of their Republican uh, reaction to the president's remarks where he said that both sides were to blame mm-hmm. for the violence that led to the death of one woman at the hands of a white supremacist. Um Bob Corker is someone you wrote about. Now, he has been a pretty frequent critic of Trump's chairman, Mm -hmm. of course, of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. Uh, What did he have to say? So his language, I think, was actually pretty shocking. Um, He used the word stability and competence in in the terms of Trump was lacking (laughs) both of those. Um, And then he called for a radical change at the White House. He didn't necessarily say what that should be, but the fact that he he called attention to the need for one, I thought was pretty striking. You're right, he has been critical of Trump. But remember, this is someone who appeared on stage with Trump during the campaign last year at rallies for a brief period was considered a potential candidate to serve in the cabinet. So for someone like that to come out against, um, you know, a president of the same sitting party in such strong language was particularly noteworthy. Yeah, there was a lot of strong language from a broad group of Republicans. Mm -hmm. Marco Rubio was quick to take to Twitter immediately after their marks and address the president directly, saying, Mr. President, you know, you cannot elevate the voices of the neo-Nazis and KKK. Uh, we were playing audio from Senator Tim Scott of South Carolina early in the program saying that the president has uh, his his moral authority has mm-hmm. been undermined. Everyone asks the question, you know, is this a turning point? <laughs> because Republicans have had a right. lot of potential turning points yeah. since Trump became a candidate, since he became the nominee, and of course since he has taken office. Do you sense that something has meaningfully changed. Right. So that's the question. I mean, we've all written this story before. You know, Trump says something controversial and, you know, Republicans say X condemning him. Will this change? Um, I don't necessarily think that this is a breaking point. For one thing, I think it's happening too far ahead of the election to have any real impact. I think, you know, the substance of what Trump said is perhaps um, a little bit riles up more people than, let's say, the Access Hollywood tape, which a lot of people were appalled at, but they were sort of able to say, okay, he said some disgusting things, but I agree with him on immigration or tax reform or whatever. He's going to get our agenda done. And I think this has outraged more people, but I still don't necessarily see it as a breaking point, just because look at the Republican responses. They were, everyone came out, they had a tweet, but very few of them actually called out the president directly, right? Mm -hmm. A lot of the tweets were just about reaffirming American values and like, you know, standing up to bigotry and Mm -hmm. we don't tolerate Nazis. And like, that's all important to say. But at the end of the day, you're not exactly addressing the issue. (laughs) And I think you hit the nail on the head. There are two people who did not address the president directly were House Speaker Paul Ryan and Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell, who have shied away from the cameras in the wake of this moment. Uh, The president's new at this. 
That's Paul Ryan's favorite <laughs> phrase. Not, I keep that ready. It's always ready. Got on so my holster. Wonderful. That might be what we hear from Paul Ryan at a town hall tonight mm-hmm. on CNN. It was originally intended to air at 9 p.m., but it will now follow. Well, they the, moved it. The, well, it will follow the oh, president's man. remarks on mm-hmm. Afghanistan. Um, so it may appear this will be the first time that Paul Ryan actually faces the cameras mm-hmm. since Charlottesville. Uh, but he, interestingly enough, had tweeted that there can be no moral ambiguity uh, around white supremacists yeah. and hate speech without actually saying um, specifically what he was referring to. Right. So, you know, if you take the tweet <laughs> in isolation, a little bit right. ambiguous, um, unless you were following the news on that day and you know exactly what he was responding to. Right. Um, and Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell also, also issued a statement that was more focused on saying that you know, similar uh, hate groups and white supremacists were not welcome in Kentucky, right. where right. they were planning to also rally. Uh, so you mentioned tax reform, you mentioned uh, what's on the pipeline, but also that this is happening well ahead of the election. And mm-hmm. so insofar as Republicans are trying to deliver on an agenda ahead of those midterms, what is the state of play? I mean, we, we also ask, what's the Trump effect? And is there a Trump effect? Is or, or is this actually one of those moments that only mobilizes Republican voters ahead of midterms? Yeah, well, I think sort of two things, depending on, you know, what base you're talking about turning out here. Let's not forget that last Tuesday, when we were all focused on Trump and, you know, criticizing things he said, was also the day of the Alabama special election, in mm. a state in which Trump is incredibly popular, approval ratings among Republican primary voters, something like 85 percent. Um, and Trump's endorsed candidate, Senator Luther Strange, also backed by, should be noted, quote unquote, establishment forces here in Washington, Mitch McConnell, obviously. Um, he finished in the top two in no small part by tying himself to Donald Trump, a president who many other Republicans on the same exact day were condemning. So it shows, I think, a little bit the dichotomy between what we're focused on here in Washington and the fact that the president does say unpopular things versus what's actually going on in the country in which the president is still really popular in a lot of these places. And yes, I think his comments do mobilize a good portion of his base. Whether that's enough for Republicans in 2018, no, probably not. I mean, you've seen a lot of vulnerable Republicans be the really the strongest and the quickest to come out last week condemning him. Um, but your point about, you know, what's on the agenda going forward, that's huge for the Republican Party. And it's probably their biggest worry right now is that if they face voters next year and they haven't gotten done any of these things, I mean, health care, that's a wash at this point. If they don't get something huge done like tax reform, they have nothing to show for themselves. And, you know, that's one of the points that I want to raise as well, because there was a new NBC mayor's poll out this weekend showing Trump underwater in some of the states that helped mm. propel him to victory. That included Michigan and Pennsylvania. Uh, and the top line was that, you know, he is underwater in some of these, you know, working class Rust Belt states um, that were responsible in many ways for his presence in the White House. But on the question of the economy, he was actually, or at least according to the numbers, he was ahead slightly, at least ahead of Democrats, um, and just ahead of you know the question of whether or not he's turning the economy around, which was one of the primary reasons why some of the voters went out to cast their ballots for him in the first place, that they felt that he was better positioned to improve their living conditions, that they had been left behind by the economic recovery, 
and this was the guy to turn it all around. So it kind of goes back to your point. Mm-hmm. We talk about the scandals, the controversies. People aren't happy. <laughs> they do feel like he uh, does not have the temperament, right. but they still seem to buy into this notion, at least uh, some, those who have proved pivotal to his success, mm-hmm. that he might be able to turn the ship around. Yeah, I think that's absolutely true. And and for Republicans in Congress, the big question is, to what extent will they be tied to Trump? Trump obviously is not on the ballot in 2018. And sort of the, the backwards way of looking at this is that this whole incident further separates him from the Republican Party in many ways. I mean, we saw last cycle when Democrats really hammered home the message that every congressional Republican was the same as Trump. That clearly failed spectacularly. Um in terms of midterm elections going forward, we don't know if they're going to adapt the same strategy. So far, it looks like it. But this, again, just goes to show that Trump, in some ways, is an anomaly from the Republicans who are most vulnerable next mm-hmm. year. Now, how problematic is it? Because it struck me that we're about seven months in now. Oh, feels like seven years. <laughs> but, you know, Republicans control the White House, mm-hmm. both chambers of Congress. There is not a single major legislative accomplishment. Now, bills that the president has signed into law are, you know, either fairly procedural mm-hmm. or, you know, uncontroversial, mm-hmm. bipartisan, um, but nothing that would be a ma- considered a major policy achievement. Obviously, their efforts to repeal and replace Obamacare failed in a fairly dramatic fashion last month. Mm-hmm. Um, they say they're going to go back to it. <laughs> we'll see um, yeah. where they go. People are saying tax reform already looks somewhat fraught with disagreements within the party. Right. Um, and there is this now frayed relationship between Trump and Republicans and Capitol Hill. So what would be the implications of Republicans not having anything really that they can run on. Yeah, I think it's really bad for them. I think most Republican strategists are really concerned that they have absolutely no platform going forward. I mean, they have the same talking points about repealing Obamacare, but like you said, we've seen that (laughs) didn't work out so well, and it's going to be really hard to try to bring back. Um, And I think the frayed relationship that you referred to is also hugely problematic. I mean, if you are the president and you are attacking Senator Jeff Flake Mm -hmm. or you are attacking Lindsey Graham, um, you know, what incentive do they have to work with you? I mean, Flake obviously has his own political considerations to take into account. Lindsey Graham isn't even up for election. The president doesn't seem to know that. But, you know, he doesn't care because his political future is not at stake. So that's going to be another whole dynamic that I think is going to be important to watch. The president all but endorsed a primary <laughs> challenger yes. Kelly Ward. for Kelly Ward for Senator Jeff Flake a junior senator from Arizona. Mm -hmm. He was one of the few Republicans in the Senate who declined to endorse Trump Mm -hmm. in the 2016 election. Flake, Jeff Flake. (laughs) Did not endorse (laughs) Hillary Clinton either, just did not endorse anyone, and then wrote a book Mm -hmm. uh, that has essentially warned uh, the party and the country that conservatism is under threat you know, by by this president and really just, you know, discusses the need for Republicans to have their own voice and their own platform um, and really explores you know his areas of disagreement with Trump uh, mm-hmm. on issues like immigration. Jeff Flake was a co-sponsor of the Gang of Eight, the bipartisan Senate immigration bill that uh, ultimately failed, but would have provided a path to citizenship in 2013 to you know, the roughly 11 million documented immigrants in the U.S. 
uh, is one of Trump's um, biggest signature issues, taking a much more hardline approach in immigration. So if you're someone like Jeff Flake, I'm just curious, and the president is publicly attacking you. Mm -hmm. Now, you know, he's done that to people like John McCain, Lindsey Graham. You just mentioned Graham. They're not up for re-election. They don't have to worry about that for a while. But people like Jeff Flake or, you know, Dean Heller or Mm -hmm. other folks who are facing vulnerable re-election campaigns, what does it mean when the president (laughs) has uh, decided that you are a target, not just for Democrats, but also yeah, I, I don't remember hearing or seeing anything like that in the past where you have two members of the same party and your president who ostensibly stands to gain from keeping a Senate majority <laughs> is attacking the two most vulnerable members. I mean, that's you mentioned Heller. Think back to during the health care debate when Trump's outside group, super PAC, whatever you want to call it, um, threatened to go after Heller in his own state, had ads ready to go attacking him for um, threatening to vote against the health care bill. That was pretty huge. The flake thing, too, I think. A lot of Republicans question that Kelly Ward uh, really stands a chance or presents a legitimate threat to um, Senator Flake. That doesn't mean that someone else could. So in some ways, I could see, you know, in a purple state, if you want to call it that, the, the president attacking a Republican senator for reelection. Maybe that's actually a good thing for him. You know, mm-hmm. maybe that helps him appeal to moderates, et cetera. Um, but in terms of political strategy coming from the White House... <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what, what the end goal is there. How upset are you if you're Mitch McConnell and you're yeah. looking at yeah. at these tweets? Um, Pretty upset. So uh, this is still related to this broader question of 2018. Mm-hmm. Uh, but for anyone who said there's only room for one Pence in Washington, <laughs> uh, that may not be the case. Uh, break it down for us. Who Tell us a little bit more about Mike Pence's brother, Greg Pence. Yeah, so um, there are two congressmen in Indiana who are running for Senate in a very nasty Republican primary, which leaves two uh, House seats vacant, of course. In the 6th District in Indiana, um, President, uh, excuse me, Vice President Mike Pence's brother, Gregory Pence, is almost assuredly going to run for that seat. He's uh, the oldest of the six Pence siblings, has been a very close confidant of the vice president, um, hearkening back to his days as a congressman and then governor in Indiana, was often on the trail with him during both campaign and official stops. Um, Not a lot of people in Indiana seem to know who he is or exactly Mm. what he would bring to the table, which I thought was really interesting. Um, Speaking to a lot of um, Republicans in the state, those who are pretty close to him, they all said that he offered very close counsel to his brother, but they couldn't exactly specify what that was. I mean, he he was able to give feedback to his brother in a way that only a brother can, but it's not like he brought a particular policy or campaign expertise to the table. Um, But I think it's safe to say that he will definitely bring sort of the same ideological conservatism to Congress if he were to be elected. It's a pretty safe Republican district. Mm -hmm. So um, and if he were to enter the primary, it's a pretty safe bet that he would win the nomination, just given the name <laughs> ID advantage that comes along with being a Pence in Indiana. By the way, you should read Simone's article on Roll Call, my favorite excerpt from this. And this is just an ordinary fact, but I, I find it very funny. Greg, Greg Pence, and his wife, Denise, are best known in the business world today for their ownership of the Exit 76 Antique Mall in <laughs> Edinburgh, a 72,000-square-foot <laughs> space that they purchased in 2006, more recently, they purchased the smaller Bloomington Antique Mall. They got a thing for antiques. This peak, peak Indiana, I feel. <laughs> it is very peak Indiana. That's true. I don't know if you've ever been antiquing, but it actually is pretty fun. It is. You got an antique hobby, Sabrina? No. Well, 
I went into like some small town and like along the eastern shore, they've got all those, you know, little towns. So I was in Cambridge a couple months ago and it was basically just like a street of like antiques shops. So uh, I think you've just been added as an antique enthusiast. I've just been added as an antique enthusiast. There's always something new that you learn on this show. And we actually still do want to hear from you at BP show is where you can tweet us. And while you're on Twitter, you can also follow Simone at SF Pathé. Um, Simone, so I was you the dynamics of that race. As you mentioned, Indiana is a safe well. This district is a safe Republican mm-hmm. district. Um, I would imagine that if you are Greg Pence, you can play up that you are the brother of the vice yep. president. Uh, but you know, there's also then that association with the president with Trump. Mm-hmm. And how so? How are Republicans? approaching um that dynamic is it still for in the primary process the case Mm -hmm. Uh, you mentioned the alabama special election now alabama is a very conservative state so i'm sure Sure. the calculation is also different depending on where you are but in the republican primaries is it very much still the case that there's a pressure to support this president to you know wholeheartedly defend him Mm -hmm. uh, even when it might seem controversial or problematic Yeah, it's pretty much a loyalty contest, I think, in most of these Republican primaries so far. The Senate primary in Indiana that I referred to earlier, it's it's all about Trump at this point. You've already seen sort of a proxy war between um, the the state chairman of the Trump campaign last year have come out and supported Congressman Todd Rokita, who's running for the nomination. And then you've got um, Greg Pence as the finance chairman for Congressman Luke Messer's campaign. Mm. So already you're seeing warring there trying, both of them are trying to say, well, you know, hey, we've got ties to the Pence's and Rokita saying, well, we've got ties to the Trump campaign. They are trying as hard as they can to say that they would be the the de facto representative for the president. Because mm, I think understanding that mindset is is critical mm-hmm. where you, you mentioned it at, at the top of the segment that we talk a lot about, you know, the latest controversy or the ways in which you know, Trump is still Trump right. and and how unprecedented this is or, you know, mm-hmm. we've never seen anything like this. Um, but Republican primary voters are behind him. Yeah. Um, uh, still in the overwhelming numbers that we saw throughout the 2016 mm-hmm. election. In fact, I think I saw a poll that his base was even more mm-hmm. uh, mobilized by his response to Charlottesville. Right. Um, that they thought he was accurate to say both sides were to blame over there. Uh, so when you're Democrats and you're looking at that dynamic, yeah. Um, now we're talking about Republican primaries, so sure, maybe they think when you get into a general election, mm-hmm. uh, then they have more room to make the their election very much a referendum on Trump. Yeah. But is that sufficient for Democrats? And what have you seen their message to be? Is it just that? Are they just running an <laughs> anti-Trump campaign? Yeah. Um, they definitely tried that last year and it didn't work out so well. And I'd say so far they're pretty much sticking to the same book. Um, they've tried to say they're doing things differently. If you remember a couple weeks ago, they all went down to Virginia and had this big rollout of a message Um no one is talking about that. We've all clearly yes. forgotten whatever that message was. A better deal, right? That I had to a, think about it for a yeah, second, yes. but that's what it is. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, I knew it. I was like, they had some cheesy catchphrase right. for the their one, economic platform. You know, it's sad about it. The first thing that came into mind was make America sick again because of how much I made fun of it when it first rolled out. That was the first thing that I thought yeah. of. That's right. Yeah. 
So, yeah, all Democrats seem to be in agreement that we need a message, we need an economic message, and certain of them have been more outspoken about that than others, but no one really is able to articulate what that message is. Um, Mm. And I think the easiest thing for them to do is just react to Trump. They are so much in reactionary mode. Um, Even the district that Charlottesville is in, the 5th District, is a pretty solid Republican district. Um, It wasn't always used to be Tom Pirello's district, so it's it's changed a little bit. It's now represented by a member of the House Freedom Caucus, so pretty conservative. But it also came out last week that he had met um, before the march with Jason Kessler, who is one of the organizers of the march in Charlottesville um, last weekend. And Democrats immediately pounced on this. You had um, a fairly substantial outside group called Vote Vets that supports um, liberal Democratic candidates for Congress sent out a fundraising email endorsing his opponent. You had Jason Kander, who's obviously an increasingly large force in the Democratic Party, also endorsing um, Congressman Tom Garrett's opponent. So Democrats are trying to use Charlottesville in this particular incidence Mm. um, against this congressman. And I think you're going to see that replicated in other ways. I mean, you don't have as direct a connection between a congressman and Jason Kessler in any other district as you do right here in Virginia's 5th District. But it's just so easy because it's what we're talking about all the time is Trump. Mm-hmm. Longer term, I think certainly they needed a much stronger message and they need something entirely independent of Trump because at the end of the day, you have Republicans like um, Carlos Corbello, for example, in Florida, who has oh, yeah. been one of, the most, exactly, yep. one of the most outspoken Republicans against Trump, did not vote for him last year. Um, but he's in a district that Hillary Clinton won by, you know, double digits. Most voters there, if you look at, you know, how he fared last year, they still see a really strong distinction between President Trump and Congressman Curbelo. So what Democrats are able to do to bring them together clearly isn't going to work. They're going to have to find some other message to go after him on. Hmm. And have you seen the same divisions within the Democratic Party uh, that we saw in 2016, Mm -hmm. a much more contentious primary than anyone had anticipated with Bernie Sanders and his insurgent campaign having a much longer lasting effect Mm -hmm. uh, than people had thought. They seem to have resolved this uh, friction between the more populist wing of the party and the more establishment Uh figures that, that, you know, want to that you know want to at least preserve some some degree of centrism yeah i don't think so i mean that carried over from as you said the primary last year all the way to the dnc leadership fight this year that was all out in the open the latest issue obviously has been abortion you know whether Mm. um, the dccc here in washington and the dnc whether they should be open to supporting candidates who do not toe the party line on abortion rights Um, and the party is very split on that you've got a lot of democrats who think that They should find the best candidates wherever they happen to be. So in areas of the South or the Midwest, for example, where social issues um, are a little bit less a central tenant of the Democratic Party, you've got a lot of members who are open to supporting Democrats who are anti-abortion. But you've got increasingly party leaders here in Washington saying, oh, no, 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 we can't do that. Mm. And a lot of that obviously has to do with donors, too. You know, you've got a lot of huge liberal donors for whom abortion rights is a really important issue. Yes. And you've got groups like Emily's List, uh, which is one of the more, you know, powerful organizations. They're killing it right now. Right. And and they their whole platform is to elect per choice Democratic women to uh, public office. So uh, that's been a fascinating fight 
uh, I think, to observe. Also mm-hmm. because that's been such a key sticking point yes. between the two parties, where the more Republicans have shifted to the right on reproductive issues, right. the more Democrats have claimed that as one of their signature platforms. Absolutely. Um, you know, I'm I'm really fascinated to see how this all plays out. I don't think... Any of us really know. My, my my key is no one knows anything is what we learned from 2016. And I know, Simone, you will continue to do the great reporting that you do at Roll Call. And I told you before, but I'll say it again. Follow her at SF Path A. Thank you so much for breaking down, you know, well, everything that we. All of the craziness. All of the craziness. <laughs> And for introducing the world to Greg Pence. Yeah, one to watch. (laughs) One to watch. Mike Pence may soon have some competition. I like the slip of the tongue to President Pence. (laughs) Because I think we we, we may soon find ourselves with the President Pence if things continue at this pace. Everyone keep on watching and listening to The Bill Press Show. We'll be back with you shortly. This is The Bill Press Show. Hey, everybody, this is Bill Press. Thanks for listening to the Bill Press and Friends podcast. And now do yourself a favor. If you haven't already done so, subscribe to the show on iTunes. Here's what you do. Just search for the Bill Press show. Then you can take us with you and listen in anywhere you go. And you'll get new shows from us as soon as they're posted. And one more thing. If you really enjoy Bill Press and Friends, please help us grow by telling a friend, writing a review, and giving us a rating on iTunes. It's so great to have you on board. Many thanks. Giving you everything you need to fight the Trump administration. This is The Bill Press Show. Live at YouTube.com slash The Bill Press Show. Welcome back to the Bill Press Show. I'm Sabrina Siddiqui, a political reporter at The Guardian, filling in for Bill on this Monday morning. We have had a pretty busy show so far, and I am very excited that my friend Pema Levy, politics reporter for Mother Jones, is joining us. Good morning. Good morning. Uh, we still are with my friends Jamie Benson. Hello, hello. Hello, hello. Rachel Pekarski and Monty Kanzler. Uh, great team over here where we have been wondering if there is anything to be made of Steve Bannon's departure from the White House. Um, the pivot that will never happen is the narrative that I am most afraid of. Business uh, as usual. Business as usual. And we'll break down a lot more of that with Pema. But first... This is the Full Court Press. Just a couple of other stories for you on this Monday morning. We begin with Jerry Falwell Jr. Jerry Falwell Jr. went on ABC's This Week yesterday, suggested that Donald Trump, his good his good buddy, had some inside information on what happened in Charlottesville, thus the initial press conference. Yes, Jerry Falwell Jr. did suggest that Trump maybe working off a conspiracy uh, theory info here. Jerry Falwell uh, has upset some of his uh, former students. Some Liberty University graduates will be sending back their diplomas to the school in Lynchburg, Virginia, to protest Falwell's support of Donald Trump. After uh, Donald Trump made his remarks, Falwell did tweet in support of Donald Trump, saying that he had a pretty good response to Charlottesville. But as of Sunday afternoon, more than 140 alumni members have expressed their support for the return your diploma effort. They plan to mail those diplomas 
to Falwell's office on September 5th. Your thoughts? You know, I think that fallout has been the, one of the fascinating pieces to watch is who's kind of making the Trump train the basis for whether or not they want to be affiliated with a particular institution. I mean, I I feel like that's what you that's what you get, right? I mean, align yourself with someone who supports white supremacists and maybe people don't want to be associated with you. <laughs> yeah, I think it's I think it's an interesting place to watch because you've seen the leaders of the evangelical movement really, you know, stay in lockstep with Trump right. for the most part. Um, and so, you know, this is certainly a lower level than that. But if they see that they're losing people by sticking with him, I think that's important. Right. Because as you mentioned, there's an informal evangelical advisory panel that for the most hmm. part has remained on board. There was only one uh, who from New York, one pastor who had expressed concern, expressed concern and, and said he would no longer be part of that uh, council. And so far, it's not as official as the business Council, the economic council that Trump disbanded after everyone <laughs> pretty much uh, fl- fled uh, from from fled the scene and resigned uh, from the American Manufacturing Council, as it was called. Uh, Pema, good morning. Thanks for joining us on a Monday morning. I have another story for you. Oh, you do. The music <laughs> went away. It's we do it differently these days. All right, so we'll jump across the pond. To uh, London, I know it's one of Sabrina's favorite cities. Uh, just a few minutes ago, uh, noon Eastern, or excuse me, noon whatever time it is in London, however they mark it, uh, Britain's Big Ben, that big clock, has bonged uh, for the last time uh, for the next four years. Big Ben will go quiet for four years uh, until 2021. Lots of repairs having to be uh, done on Parliament's clock tower, ranked 12 times at noon. They will still ring it uh, between those four years until 2021 on special occasions like New Year's Eve. Many lawmakers uh, there in London have said uh, that uh, there shouldn't be silence whatsoever. It's an important symbol of British democracy. I've actually, you know, I was was in the Parliament um, on one of my more recent trips to London. I feel like it was pretty cool like when you're a reporter there to walk by and walk into like the Big Ben and that whole area. Um, although I guess maybe that's what people think about the capital. I don't know. But I feel like their they're like their layout, their structure is, is cooler than ours. I've still never been. You've still never been? I know. You've never been to London? No. Okay, well we gotta fix that. The Guardian reporter thinks you should go to London. <laughs> I've earned my my. your radio on tv and online this is the bill press show pema levy joining us from mother jones now i can say it because uh the new format still one that that gets me every time <laughs> even when i've got this great cheat sheet that people cannot see you were just so excited <laughs> i to was start so excited hashtag girls night in the a.m girls night in the a.m <laughs> our friend elise foley also joining us at 8 30 this morning, and we'll we'll get a little bit more into the dynamic when she joins us. <laughs> we don't take calls anymore, though. No, but we read tweets. So we, we take tweets. If you want to tweet at yeah. us, which is at unfortunate, BT show. we had questions that we wanted to ask of our audience. Shh, Sabrina, I know. <laughs> I, I won't. I won't. I won't say. I won't say. But just that you know, we could have had a lot of fun, a lot more fun. Yeah. We're gonna have a lot of fun. Um, Pema, we've been talking about everything from Steve Bannon's departure to the president's address on Afghanistan that is expected in primetime tonight, 9 p.m. 
Uh, but I'm interested in switching gears a little bit with you because remember Russia? That was the thing <laughs> that already it seems we've right. forgotten about. Uh, the fact that Russia interfered with the 2016 election in a deliberate effort to undermine Hillary Clinton and propel Trump's campaign. The question of whether or not the Trump campaign colluded with the Russians has not yet been answered by the uh, you know federal investigators who are escalating uh, their probe into you know the extent to which there were communications between people in Trump's orbit and Moscow. Uh, you have written a lot about the issue, but one thing that you've also written about lately is that Trump election commissioners are resisting efforts to protect elections from hacking. Yes. So what is going on there? And is there cause for concern <laughs> when you are thinking especially about what transpired in 2016? Yeah, I think there's a lot of cause for concern, actually. Um I'll start with, you know, Jim Comey's famous testimony back in June. Uh, One of the things that really struck me about it was that he, I think, came there to sort of relay a lot of messages to Congress and to the American public. And one of the ones that he sort of unsolicited said many times was, everyone needs to take the Russian interference seriously. They will be back. This is a bipartisan issue. This is our democracy. Please, please, please look into this. And he said it many times. And one of the things he's, I believe, he's talking about and one of the things that, you know, security experts and people in the intelligence community are worried about is Russia hacking our elections. Um, a lot of states work on really old voting machines. Their, you know, uh, election databases are online and they're easily hackable. Uh, machines are hackable. There are third-party vendors that do some of the vote tabulating. Who knows what their securities, you know, some of them probably have good security, some of them probably don't. And so there's a lot of vulnerabilities. We know that the Russians did um, penetrate uh, some voting systems in different states. We don't you know, know the extent of it at this point. Um, but the clear message from the intelligence community is that they will be back. And on the other side, you have um, a number of people, people who have been, you know, they, they say that they're really obsessed with voter integrity. Um, they say that they're, you know, really worried about voter fraud, but they're really downplaying the threat of Russian hacking. And I imagine it's because it distracts from other things they want, like voter ID laws or, you know, proof of citizenship to register to vote. Uh, but the result is that you have people advising this administration on election security who who say that the threat of Russians hacking our election is basically zero. Which is terrifying. Um, because you want to believe in the integrity of our elections and that this administration can oversee fair elections. Um, but I think it, you cannot emphasize enough while you're pointing out the the dynamic at play here that Trump himself, you can't say enough, has refused to accept the conclusion of the intelligence community that Russia meddled in the U.S. election to begin with. Yeah, I think one of the really interesting dynamics here that we're going to see play out is John Kelly. Um, When he was head of DHS, he took this threat seriously. And DHS is currently uh, initiating a program. Program is a weird way to put it. They've basically designated election infrastructure as critical infrastructure. And so DHS is sort of on top of this. And Kelly's now in the White House. Uh, But that also means he's not at DHS. And so we don't know who's going to go in at DHS, and we don't know exactly what kind of priority they're going to give to this. Hmm. 
No, I feel like the, um, you know, election commission uh, that Trump uh, put into place has been fascinating. You cover voting rights and voting issues a lot, and it's something that doesn't get a lot of attention, which is kind of why I wanted to switch gears a little bit um, and talk about it. I appreciate uh, that. <laughs> well, and also to highlight your great work, which everyone should read at motherjones.com, um, because I saw this in the news as well, that, you know, the Justice Department was... Uh, demanding that an anti-Trump website turn over information about its visitors, uh, which would seem to be in violation of the Constitution. But you, why don't you break down for us what what exactly happened? I think you you said that privacy advocates felt it's a McCarthy-esque strategy, or could be. Yeah, exactly. So uh, around inauguration, a website came up that was used to basically organize Inauguration Day protests. Um, I think it was called DisruptJ20.com. I'm not 100% sure. I don't remember exactly. Uh, And a lot of people visited this website. Uh, That was DisruptJ20.org. There you go. (laughs) Um, A lot of people visited. I think they had uh, 1.3 million visitors. And... Uh, the Justice Department has asked the company that hosts that website, a company in the Bay Area called DreamHost, mm-hmm. to turn over identifying information on all 1.3 million of those visits. So, for example, I would be in that because I was covering the protests and therefore I went to the website to see where the protest would be. Um, you mean so, you were doing your job, Pema? Yes, ah, yes. Ah, yes, okay. Um, I would assume there are thousands of journalists uh, who would be swept up by, by this, as well as, you know, um, you know, Americans who simply could have been interested in um, learning about protests. Also, that's totally legal. <laughs> it's not a crime. You have a right to access information anonymously. And uh, essentially, you know, what the Privacy Act Rights Activists told me is that this is scary because the— administration would basically have a map of, you know, people they were interested in protesting this administration and they would know who they are and where they are and what software they're running on their computers, um, you know, where they live. Um, And, you know, once you have that sort of map available of of the movement, you know, who knows what you can do? I don't want to be sort of like doomsday and like Orwellian about it, but, you know, that they would have that list and that's pretty scary. Right. I think that you don't necessarily want to be overlying about it, but as the the thing that kind of goes back to what I was saying about the other story that you were just dissecting about, you know, the the resistance by, um, you know, the Trump election commissioners to, you know, anti-hacking um, mechanisms. That it goes back to the thinking that is espoused from the very top, which is, you know, in the way that Trump hasn't yet acknowledged uh, that the Russia ever meddled in the election. And so you're seeing that manifest itself down the chain of command here where you where the Justice Department is seeking information on uh, visitors to an anti-Trump website. Uh, Trump is someone who has had very authoritarian tendencies when it especially when it comes to his political opponents. I mean, he ran a campaign where he was essentially running on jailing his political opponent. And then, you know, when it comes to, you know, his response to people who protest his administration, he all but presents them as anarchists. Uh, and, and I mean, the talks- Justice Department prosecuted a woman for laughing during Jeff Sessions' confirmation hearing. Exactly. Um, and, you know, GBT. I think these things are Arrested serious. reporters. And they're, they're I think chilling. there was a reporter who was arrested for, apprehended for shouting out questions to the HHS secretary 
Tom Price. That happened a few months back as well. Yeah. So, I mean, even if the government, you know, obtains this information and never uses it, uh, it, it still sends a message of we know where you are. We have this list um, the same way it does when you say, oh, you laughed in a hearing. Well, we're going to you know, right. put you on trial. It's intimidation uh, at the very least. And it sends a chilling uh, signal, I think, to uh, people who, you know, we, it was not fair to say that we are like in a dictatorship, but people who have who have who have cause for con- <laughs> who have cause for concern, um, to say the least. When you look at you know Trump's affinity uh, that he, for people like Vladimir Putin, uh, for authoritarian leaders, or leaders is maybe not even a good word, but for dictators around the world, Jamie, you seem to have a thought. Well, you, we hadn't mentioned this yet. I think this is worth mentioning that on Saturday after the Boston rally, after the it was sort of winding down, his first response to it was a tweet, quote, looks like many anti-police agitators in Boston. Police are looking tough and smart. Thank you. He did go on to tweet better tweets. <laughs> he cleaned it up a little bit and did sort of celebrate the act of protesting to an extent, but that's his first response. Right. Anti-police agitators when actually, uh, if you ask the Boston Police Commissioner, Bill Evans, uh, you get a very different perspective on the scene that we saw over the weekend. I'm really impressed. We probably had 40,000 people out here, you know, standing tall against hatred and bigotry in our city, and that's a good feeling. I just want to point out that Bill would fit right in in the uh, Goodwill Hunting sequel. Just, he is authentically Boston. <laughs> so top so to Boston. Yeah. I'm sure Ben Affleck is casting for his next movie soon <laughs> enough. Um, but yes, it's just the instinct of of this president to craft, you know, an alternative reality around you know himself. Um, and I think that to me, one of the most uh, or one of the scariest uh, aspects of that is the effect on voting rights and uh, how this administration will oversee two elections, <laughs> um, yeah. one in the near future, both in the near future. Um, so, Pema, one thing that we have been talking about and we did talk about at the start of the show is Steve Bannon. Um, and, you know, where do we go from here? Now, I think that... To be fair, people were a little bit better this time about not reporting it as a pivot. Maybe yeah. that will all dissipate when he talks about war at 9 p.m. tonight because there's nothing that riles up uh, the mainstream media more than war <laughs> for some reason. Uh, it just gets people, uh, you know, feeling maybe it's, it's the patriotism that comes from it, but suddenly then, you know, he's presidential and it's, it's you know, it's it's a new chapter. Uh, but, uh, the re, you know, with Steve Bannon, it doesn't really seem like a new chapter at all. If anything, it looks like he's headed, he's already gone back to Breitbart. He's talking about potentially a TV network to rival Fox News from the right, because, you know, Fox News hasn't done enough to defend Donald Trump. Right. Other right. than just running segments basically for the most part. It's hard to out Hannity. Yeah. That don't yeah, that that <laughs> don't actually show what's happening at the White House that somehow are still talking always about Hillary Clinton and Obama even. Like the it's like the the, the old hits are never seem to uh you know, they they're always playing the old hits and never seem to disappear. Um where do you think uh, or how do you think Bannon will um wield his influence from the outside? 
And who you've covered this administration a lot. You've covered a lot of the kind of conspiratorial and right wing voices who are still very much there. Um, you know, is that who do you think is still, you know, cause for concern, I guess, if you're in the West Wing? Yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, one of the thing that's, things that I, I see two sides of this. I guess I would say I think that one of the things we know Trump really disliked about Bannon is that he got a lot of credit for Trump's success. Mm. And so he would stress, oh, you know, he came on very late. You know, uh, he really wanted didn't like the fact that the media was giving Bannon credit for his success. Uh, but I think that Steve Bannon did have a lot of sway with him. I mean, the president saw eye to eye with him on a lot of things, but Bannon, I think, really did guide his thinking. You know, long before he joined the campaign, Mm -hmm. Trump would go on his radio show and he'd basically coach him through, you know, what to think and what to say um, right there on air. And so I think that not having and I think that as much as the left despises Bannon and as much as he's, you know, seems to be, you know, (laughs) on the side of white supremacists and neo-Nazis on some of these things, um, I think he was right about certain ways to mobilize certain, you know, factions of the electorate and to demoralize others. And, you know, I think he's savvy. And so I think, you know, not having him around could potentially be a problem for Trump. On the other hand, you know, whereas in the White House, Bannon could be sidelined and ignored on some issues. Now he can't be ignored because he's outside agitating at Breitbart. And so I think that it's possible his influence will actually be bigger because Trump Mm-hmm. knows that he has this whole side of the base, you know, who are lis- watch, listener, or, uh, reading Breitbart and listening to Bannon, um, and he doesn't want to lose those people. Yes, and the, you had Trump on Saturday uh, tweeting his support for Steve Bannon, thanking him for his service to the country, and also giving him a little bit of uh, a, a stamp of approval in this effort to builds, you know, and an, an, expand upon the media empire that he already created to some extent with Breitbart, saying that, you know, the fake news media could deserve some competition. Um, and when he initially left the White House, tweeting about crooked Hillary, when you talk about rehashing the hits, yes. right back to the hits. Yeah, I mean, I think he, I think that Trump knows that as long as he and, you know, he first of all, you know, credit where credit's due, but, you know, Trump seems to really believe all the things that he and Bannon have been talking about and pushing. So, you know, it's not like he necessarily wants to change his policies. And I think he knows that keeping Bannon as an ally on the outside is potentially, you know, a very powerful thing. I have a question. So uh, over the weekend, Splinter News published an article titled, Charlottesville was a preview of the future of the Republican Party. Alex Perrine wrote this. Did anybody catch this over the weekend on their feeds? I did not, but I would love for you to enlighten us because we might have an answer to your question. So, Alex, (laughs) well, I mean, I know Pema writes about some of these, you know, hate groups from time to time. And certainly we all followed Charlottesville very closely. Uh, We forgot to mention this with Simone as well. But you had uh, a picture with uh, two of the white supremacists. One met with uh, Kessler in Virginia and the other met with Dean Heller, uh, you know, months ago. But regardless, they're white nationalists that have been meeting with Republican officials. Alex Breen makes the argument here that the next thing that Republicans, the, one of the only things left that Republicans have to keep or get young voters is perhaps this white nationalist wave that's, quote unquote, taking over the country. Is the Republican Party poised to become closer to a white supremacist party than they have in what, half a century? 
I think that well, they're already there. <laughs> I think that they have the the figurehead of of that movement as as you know commander in chief. Um, but you know, I do think that there is this struggle where the elected Republicans in Washington, for the most part, um, spoke out and condemned you know the direction. Um, were certainly the events in Charlottesville, but also the direction the president took it in immediately after. Uh, they haven't taken any action uh, to but hold them accountable. Who, but I think that they they obviously still believe and want to try and, um, you know, they believe that they are not the party of the KKK or of white supremacists or of these hate groups. Um, but then the question becomes, how do you, you know, tweet about it? How do you speak out about it? Um, but then accept the reality that as long as Trump is in office and will continue to pander to those same groups, um, how do you distance the Republican Party from you know white supremacists when so when the Republican Party is also defined in this moment by Donald Trump? He is the leader of the Republican Party and at the moment of the country. Well, I, I think the, the the question you have to answer first is who is more influential for college Republicans, Breitbart? Mm-hmm. Or a Republican like Jeff Flake. I mean, I I think that the I th- I don't think I haven't done the focus groups, but I would actually assume that we, even though they aren't marching as much, I would think they would be more the Jeff Flake crowd because I think that um, certainly one of the most troubling things about this rise in white nationalism and, and white supremacy is that it does seem to appeal to some cohort of young people, particularly young men, uh, that by appearances seems to be the case. Uh, But I have to think, especially because, you know, the younger you sort of get in terms of demographics, the more diverse you get, uh, you know, the more you get people who, you know, maybe they are libertarians, maybe they're fiscally conservative, but they're not going to stand around and like stomach uh, racism. And so I, my gut tells me that that would not be a wise move for them to sort of double down thinking that they're going to capture more young people, uh, even though there's certainly... An element of that, my guess is that they're more of a vocal minority, but I I shudder to think that someone is doing a focus group on this, but yes. you well, never know. You know, actually, it was in the Washington Post this weekend that a GOP strategist working on campaigns in red and purple states said, while support for Trump generally declined slightly since Charlottesville, support rose among his base. Mm-hmm. Now, that could still be older um, white Americans, and there we, but we have seen polling that we talked about earlier in the show where this is very much split along party lines where a, a majority uh, disapprove of his response, but it was somewhere in the 60s. And when you asked Republicans, uh, they a majority of Republicans felt that he was accurately blaming both sides. I do think one thing that people have, however, mentioned, which is very uh, disturbing, is that and you've seen it in the videos and the images, a lot of the people who are marching are young, uh, young white men. Now, these are, having said that, isolated rallies, you know, of a few hundred, sometimes a couple thousand. We saw in Boston, I mean, it was like a hundred of them. Yeah, there might be. Compared to 40,000 counter-protesters. Right, right? exactly. So, So when you look at the map and when you look at the exit polls, from 2016, um, a majority of young Americans still voted for Hillary Clinton, and they didn't turn out in sufficient numbers. Um, they did not turn out in the same numbers as they did 
for Obama. That was the, but more because they were either voting third party or not voting at all. Um, but it was there was that there was an image that I'm sure you could find. But if it was, you know, only millennials who voted in the election, almost the entire country would have been blue. So you still have very much, I think, at least among the next generation, the younger generation of rejection of what it is that Trump and that so-called alt-right stands for. Yeah, I would say one final one thing on this that I would say is because I, I said earlier that I think that, you know, for all of the disgusting things that he's aligned himself with, Bannon is a pretty savvy person. Mm-hmm. And uh, I read over the weekend that one of the things that Bannon has been saying, which strikes me as true, is that the idea is not for Trump to grow his base. Mm. The idea is to keep his base excited and then win over, you know, enough of the country to stay at 51 percent or something in the next election simply by getting things done. Because if the economy is doing well and you've done tax cuts and health care and things that people want, then they're sort of willing to overlook and discount the Charlottesville stuff, the racist stuff, mm-hmm. you know, maybe the immigration stuff that they find really distasteful because they're like, look, he's not a great guy. But at the end of the day, the economy is doing good. I'm do- my tax bill is down. Things are moving along. So, like, maybe we just needed, you know, a bull in a china shop here. And I think that that's right. I think that, you know, sure, there's going to be a few more young people who who join this movement movement before this is through, no doubt. Um, but ultimately, the idea is not really to grow Trump's base. It seems to be about where it's going to be. The idea is to keep them energized and then make everyone else say, just deal with that because we're going to get things done. I, yeah. d- I don't see Republicans on Capitol Hill allowing things to be done the way that the Trump administration or the way Bannon had laid out the agenda to be done. Yeah, I definitely think that's the the weakness of that strategy. Right. I mean, you have you have to they're doing the first path, which is keep your base energized and happy. And then the second half is get things done. And they haven't quite, you know, come through on the second half. But but I think, you know, theoretically, that mm-hmm. that's a strategy that makes sense. And to Pema's point, and this is a poll that I had mentioned uh, earlier in the show, but did not have up to actually pull the numbers. Um, Trump's job approval rating, according to a new poll, NBC News Marist poll, is down in Michigan, Pennsylvania, and Wisconsin. So three key swing states that helped propel him to victory. But having said that, there, when asked about the economy... That's where these voters gave him somewhat higher marks. Now, he was he did not have support from a majority, uh, but let's in Michigan, for example, by a 42 to 39 percent margin, voters said that the U.S. economy is doing better by under Trump. Pennsylvania, it was 45 to 38 percent. Wisconsin, it was dead even at 41 percent. So a little bit more troublesome. But there's an there's still this dynamic that you just referenced we talk a lot about the noise and voters on the question of, you know, what issues they care about, especially jobs and the economy. How much money is in my bank they, account this year? <laughs> you know? And they they seem to think that things, have, the economy has been strengthened uh, under Trump, which is actually just a continuation of the progress under the previous administration. But it gives thanks, him Obama. a talking point. Hashtag thanks, Obama. So... You know, I think that will really be the key question. What is it that voters ultimately care about? Maybe we'll revisit it when we return with Girls' Night in the AM. I am so excited uh, for this. Our friend <coughs> Hashtag Foley is joining us after the break. So stay tuned to The Bill Press Show. I'm really impressed. We probably had 40,000 people out here. 
you know, standing tall against hatred and bigotry in our city. And that's a good feeling. Download our podcast, search for The Bill Press Show on iTunes, and remember to rate, review, and subscribe. This is The Bill Press Show. Live video, Bill's commentary, the best clips from the show, all in one place. YouTube.com slash The Bill Press Show. Welcome back to The Bill Press Show. I'm Sabrina Siddiqui, political reporter at The Guardian, and they say to save the best for last. And we already had Pema in studio, and now we have Elise Foley, politics and immigration reporter at HuffPost. Morning. Good morning. And, you know, this is basically me and my friends just hanging out on the radio. So, And for me, this is terrifying. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. We all inside jokes the whole time. Yeah. We're just going to sit here and, like, talk about life and uh, break down, you know, what's what's going on with us in our... No, we're not actually going to talk about our personal lives, but we could just have a lot of fun here. I mean, this is basically what we just hang out the way we hang out at brunch, maybe we should just like replicate it. We have bagels. Do you guys talk <laughs> politics when you go out, or do you, not, do you try to stay away from? Not this? really. <laughs> I was gonna say maybe so, this is gonna be an accurate brunch where we actually just talk about. I think about and I yeah. sometimes gravitate a little yeah. more. And Elise I refuse. Look, and um, but I'll talk like, about okay. politics this morning. Yeah, this morning. <laughs> Make an exception. Yeah. Make an exception. <laughs> Some sometimes sometimes we do deviate into into politics because you know it's work. It's, it's life, also. It's life. Yeah. It's, a, it's, a, it's life. But I feel like we've been better lately. We yeah, have, I we think have, so. We have more exciting things, I, I swear. For sanity's sake. To talk about. For sanity's sake. Emotional sanity, especially. Um, Elise, how, newly returned from Texas. How are you doing? Doing well. <laughs> um, first, before we dive into news um, of the day, of the week, of the month, Eclipse today is the day of the solar eclipse. Are you guys watching? Where are you watching? Of course. From? I, I don't have, have my gla- glasses. I don't have the glasses. I don't have the glasses. Neither One of my I. coworkers uh, ordered them last week, like rush order. She had to order 25 of them. So, <sighs> so you guys are ready. I have are, they, are they compliant though? Because there's they, been a lot yeah, of Yeah, um, supposedly recalls. they are. Uh, I hope so. If we all go blind, it's her fault. Um, <laughs> but I guess we'll just go watch in the park or something. I feel like yeah. it's a nice reason to go outside in the middle of the day, if nothing else. Where exactly? So I'm trying to figure. So you could just see from. It's supposed to be like eighty percent, right? Eighty percent, which um, I've heard isn't like that much of a change. But there's going to be sort of like weird shadows and stuff. I don't I even don't care. Know. It's nice to just get up. <laughs> yeah. So like you can yeah. experience it without looking at the sun if you don't have the glasses. Yeah. Is that what yes. you're saying? Yeah. Okay. I think so. Right. That makes me feel better. I, I had some serious FOMO this morning. I went to two Seven Elevens. Both, neither, because 7-Eleven is like an authorized retailer to sell these things. Both had sold out. I got laughed out of one 7-Eleven. So (laughs) I I just hope I can experience it in some way. I mean, it's a big deal. First time since 1979. So There's like do-it-yourself guides on the internet where I guess you could go horribly wrong, but something to do with like cardboard and like cutting out little, I don't know, getting aluminum foil. I saw someone tape six pairs of sunglasses together. (laughs) I literally saw one article that said if you hold your like hands a certain way, like as like a waffle, then you like I don't I don't really understand how that works. I just got LASIK a few months ago, yeah. so I'm not messing with my eyes yeah. right now. Too expensive. That's a yeah. pretty good call. I I'm actually, not gonna endorse any of that. I've been the worst about this. I honestly like this morning 
didn't even fully remember if it was today or tomorrow or what time. And I'm like, not not the best when it comes to eclipse enthusiasm. But um, I'm then I'm gonna feel like major FOMO when I'm the only one who's not able to see it. Um, <laughs> Elise, a uh, great immigration reporter, and that's something that we haven't divulged in as much this morning. Um, with all the talk about Bannon, although I mean one of the, I think um, thematic elements of Trump has been this hard line on immigration, uh, catering very much to the likes of Breitbart um, mm-hmm. and someone like Steve Bannon now rejoining Breitbart, probably operating a lot more on the outside and maybe more influential there. Uh, you know, we had you had the fifth anniversary of DACA. Um, where you you also, I believe you have attorneys general who are trying to force a decision by the Trump administration. That's right, states. States, yes. And so state attorneys general, yes, led by Ken Paxton, uh, one of the more conservative uh, members in the state of Texas. So have we had any sense on from where the administration is going to land? Not really. So I just every so often will reach out to the Justice Department and say, have you decided whether you would defend DACA in court if it came to that? And they say no comment. So um, every so often I just, you know, get a fresh no comment from them. But basically what's happened is these uh, states attorneys general and a lot of them helped take down Obama's um, broader policy on giving reprieve to some undocumented people. They said that uh, they that the administration has until early September to get rid of DACA or they will try to end it in court. So we have no idea whether uh, Trump will just get rid of DACA on his own, um, whether they if it went to court, he would even bother to defend it. He hasn't said the Justice Department hasn't said. Um, So, you know, I think that that spells pretty bad things for DACA. Uh, Either they get rid of it on its own, they let it die in court, or maybe they go out and defend it or push for legislation for people, which I would be a you know long-term better solution for them, but we'll see. I'm I'm curious if you've come across this quandary because I don't I'm not I'm gonna preface this by saying I'm not a lawyer, but <laughs> it seems to me that someone like Jeff Sessions, the attorney general, and other people in the Trump administration are in a little bit of a bind right now because they are in control of the executive branch. And so if you argue, you know, if you don't defend DACA, you're saying we have less power yeah. on immigration than you would have if you defended DACA. And so I think, you know, first of all, this is an attorney general who wants a lot of control over states when it comes to immigration, who wants to, you know, enforce, who wants to basically get rid of sanctuary policies across the country. Um, they have a lot of certain, pri- certainly priorities that they want to impose, you know, with executive power onto the immigration system. And so I have to imagine that there's confusion here about what to do, because on the one hand, you want to get rid of DACA. You hate DACA. This is, you know, an Obama overreach. And on the other hand, you're like, oh, now I'm in power. And if I argue against this, I could undermine the other things that I want to be doing. So I don't know if you've come across that, but it seems like a possibility. It's definitely, I mean, that's definitely a would be a reason that it would be nice, I think, for them to not have to deal with it in court and why mm. they probably don't aren't that happy with Ken Paxton right now. Or, on the other hand, maybe they are happy with Ken Paxton because then they could get rid of it and it wouldn't be their fault, per se. Mm. It would be because of the courts. But that's definitely a risk is that you're, you know, m- making it so that it's precedent that you have less power. I mean, it, certainly that's already come up. I mean, you had um, when 
Att- state attorneys general successfully sued to stop the the broader, you know, the bigger DACA from going into effect. That's cited now in cases by Democratic at- states attorneys general um, trying to stop other overreach. They go in and they say, look, 10th Amendment, like, look, you can't do this. This is our control. And they're citing that case a lot. And, you know, I see it in briefs that I'm reading on issues that aren't even immigration. So I do think that there's uh, a problem there for them. Yeah. Now, I, as you mentioned, Louise, perhaps a legislative fix would just be um, the way to, you know, not only put an end to this debate, but at least, you know, eliminate some of the lingering politics around it. And I know that Lindsey Graham and Dick Durbin had revived the DREAM Act just a couple of weeks ago before Congress uh, went into recess. And I mean, the Green the DREAM Act has always, you know, been contentious. And you've had that dynamic of kind of conservative hardliners who, you know, pretty much view anything providing undocumented immigrants with some level of status or citizenship as amnesty. But now I think with DREAMers, Republicans tend to be a little bit more sympathetic. Um, do you see there, do you see a potential for the DREAM Act to go anywhere in this Republican-led Congress? Probably not. Yeah. And I, I think they're in such a, a position, I think a lot of them, that they don't want to be in, in that I don't think that most of them are dying to take away these things from these people who have done an amazing job over the past uh, more than 10 years of presenting themselves as sympathetic and really getting their stories out there. I don't think somebody like Paul Ryan is dying to have it on him that, you know, they screwed over all these people. At the same time, uh, you're going to have, like you said, Bannon back at Breitbart. Those people, Breitbart, they would go completely crazy if Republicans started pushing for some type of amnesty without anything else. And the question is what you would pair it with so that you could say that you were getting some victory, especially because, you know, you could say, okay, we'll do this so that we can get funding for the wall. They could do that on their own. I mean, so it's what do you pair it with so that you can claim that you're not just giving away amnesty for free without Mm -hmm. anything else? I I don't know. And as we know, comprehensive immigration reform is dead on arrival. We learned that lesson in 2013. I mean, more so now than it was then because of the backlash um, and the Trump Factor. I mean, when you have Trump in the White House having campaigned so aggressively against, um, well, immigration reform, period, let alone yeah. comprehensive immigration reform, it, I'd be hard pressed to think that uh, outside of funding for the wall and border security measures, that they're really, really you know, moving in any direction toward citizenship. Or- yeah, yeah, and I think the this idea that you know, with Bannon out, maybe Trump will become different on immigration. I just don't see that happening. I think that Trump believes what he says on immigration. Stephen Miller is still there. Yeah, and actually, (laughs) I was going to ask you, John Kelly um, is an interesting um, figure here because he was, of course, until recently, the um, head of the Department of Homeland Security, um, now the chief of staff, having replaced Reince Priebus. And you had written about this a while ago, and I, when he was um, DHS secretary, he's actually been pretty faithful to Trump's the Trump administration's immigration um, platform thus far. Now, obviously, they haven't, you know, necessarily they haven't gone and rounded up like millions of people and deported them yet. Right. But like you, that's, that's a the, matter that's of a logistics. Low, that's a low bar and a matter of logistics. I mean, the sanctuary policy, the desire to overturn them, is in a way a way of trying to fulfill that. Um, but what do you think um, the Kelly factor brings to the table here? So it's pretty hard to say, I think. He was very aggressive in pursuing Trump's 
deportation policies. Um, but he would always say when he'd get criticized that, look, we're just following the law. If Congress doesn't like it, they should change the law. And then, um, you know, according to Democrats behind closed doors saying that, yeah, I think it would be good to do something for dreamers specifically. Um, and they sort of challenged him, OK, if you think that, why don't you come to the Hill and try and push for something for dreamers? Uh, I don't suspect that that's going to happen now that he's in the White House. I didn't think it was going to happen when he was DHS secretary either. But in theory, if he truly thinks that now he has the president's ear even more and he, maybe he could try to convince him. Um it's hard to say what he actually thinks. He claims that he's just about following the law. Uh, I don't get the sense that he's dying to change it in a comprehensive way, but I, I think you know his personal views are pretty opaque to a lot of people, even people who know him. Yeah, I mean, I think one thing I would bring up when, when we're talking about the possibility of a, a dream act or something like that is the fact that we're actually only, what, 14 months away from the 2018 elections? Mm. And if there's one thing that, you know, Republicans are scared of, it's a primary electorate that's completely mobilized by the idea of immigration. And so it's hard for me to imagine people, you know, Republicans in districts that are pretty much gerrymandered to favor a Republican, just among mm -hmm. just the furthest right one. And so I think that that's a problem for them. And then the thing about Kelly that I think is interesting is, like you said, I have no idea what he actually thinks about immigration, but he certainly believes in law and order. I think he's sort of you know, connected with the president on that level. And so, like you said, he can just sort of say, look, I'm a military man. I'm about following rules. I'm about hierarchy. These are the rules. The correct thing to do is follow the rules to the furthest extent possible. I think it's a pretty simplistic view of immigration law because that gives so much latitude to the executive to decide how to implement it that I don't think you can really make an argument that, you know, pushing for maximum deportations is necessarily the most faithful application of immigration law. But uh, I think it's one way to look at it, and it's certainly one that Kelly feels comfortable with. And one thing that you mentioned about the 2018 factor is, you know, you have someone, for example, like Jeff Flake, who is an open supporter of um, immigration reform. He was one of the members of that gang of eight, and he continues to talk about, in fact, he just had a whole book um, about where Republicans should break with Trump and chart their own brand of conservatism. One of them was immigration. But then you have a president who all but endorsed his primary challenger, Kelly Ward, in a tweet, in part retribution for said book. Um, but you could imagine it's immigration. It's backed up with money, potentially, and it's back, backed up potentially with money. He'll be in Arizona this he'll week. Be, and he'll be, Trump he'll will be in Arizona tomorrow for a rally where he will perhaps pardon Sheriff Joe Arpaio. Um, so, but, you know, you have... <laughs> God, here we are. And um, but you have, was like, oh, I didn't even ask. <laughs> what a nice idea. And, but, you know, you have someone like Jeff Flake. You have Dean Heller in a state like Nevada who struggled enough on the issue of health care. Um, so, I, you know, you bring in with a state with a very large Hispanic population the complex issue of immigration. And I think, as you said, I don't think Republicans really want to have to deal with this. Yeah, I kind of suspect that they would rather just not have to talk about it at all. But some some I, of them. I think it would mean going to war. Some of them would war. love to talk about it. Certainly. But I think it does mean going to war with Bannon and, and Breitbart at this point and doing it, you know, during primary campaigns. And yeah. That. And they were going after Paul Ryan last time for doing not much of anything. <laughs> I mean. I think one of Elise so, and yeah, my I think that favorite Breitbart hits had to do with Paul Ryan has a wall around his house but won't build a wall Along the U.S.-Mexico border, they're very similar <laughs> concepts. Basically, he has a fence too, because you know he's a 
Well, first of all, he has a house where lots of people have fences, and uh, he's got children, and he's the speaker of the house. Well, so. we have children in America. Yeah, so one, <laughs> this is all one could survive if you would have a fence around your house, period, let alone if you're the speaker of, of the house uh, and a public figure. But, you know, why won't he then support a wall along the U.S.-Mexico? Well, he did actually go out and make this whole video. I mean, they put some money into their um, their budget for the... For the wall. Yes. Where Where is the wall, Elise? Where can you actually? Can you bring? <laughs> I mean, I think the that budget, people thought that debate the budget soon. Yeah, they have gotten money for it so far. Um, they've made some progress on it. They are building these prototypes. Um, so I think that it's possible that there will be a lot more fencing. I was gonna ask. Um, you this? know, people forget that <laughs> Democrats voted for more fencing also, Wait. and they've really the the idea of the wall has kind of turned into. We're going to have this giant wall that sounded like a concrete thing to now we're going to have a fence that you can see through, uh, which is, you know, what Border Patrol thinks is a better idea anyway. But I, oh. I think that it's possible that it'll get downgraded enough that it could, yes. it could happen. Is this not be expensive? Didn't the, the, the Senate bill, if I'm not wrong, did it not have like 700 miles of fencing built into it? Yeah. And so is this not actually... Has it not become similar to, you know, fencing, as you said, that was supported by both parties and it's just going to be a symbolic victory or will be sold as one by the president? Yeah, potentially. I mean, there is a there are a lot of things that are hard about doing it beyond just cost in that, you know, you have eminent domain issues and you have places where it's too hard to build and maybe they just won't build them in it in those places. But uh, I think it sort of has become a symbol for something else and this idea that you only need to do border security and deport a bunch of people and that'll fix immigration. Um, and that's that's something that Democrats don't agree with at all. And I'm not going to say that they support the wall, um, but I think that, you know, they've they've supported fencing. So hmm. I think that um, I was I, I still have to say that video that Paul Ryan, his office produced where he you know, tours the U.S.-Mexico border and it's got like a very trendy techno music. But he seems to be all in on... I think the messaging, though, I think is interesting because that that was his... The the, the video, it's at the, the speaker's uh, YouTube page, was basically very dramatically says it's time for the wall. And I think as a, as a political messaging, um, from a political messaging point of view, it does seem like Republicans are all in on this concept, though, right? I mean, obviously, like you said, the semantics, um, I mean, they. I think they're more political. If anything, the actual substance, we'll see what the wall actually looks like. Maybe it is more watered down into fencing. It's going to be a fence. It'll be <laughs> That's fence. my bet. It's but, not, but there's not going to be a wall. Politically, if you're Republicans... Um, is that where they is that where do you think that Trump has actually infiltrated on immigration now the Republican orthodoxy, even in Congress? Because Paul Ryan was someone who in the campaign was, you know, uh, one of the ones who said there's not going to be a wall and he was trying to strike a very different tone on immigration. And now they're producing this video. Um, well, now they see that it was a success to <laughs> say that. We should have a wall. I think it's I mean, an I think easy that, way to give him a win, too. Yeah, definitely. And um, it's something that you can make a, you know, argument for that is sounds pretty common sense. Um, why why not have something to block people from coming into the country mm-hmm. without authorization? I, I think that, you know, it might not be, they might not see it as the toughest thing to defend. Yeah. A um, national security case can be made or, you know, they can point to terrorists or 
illegal you know, Paul Ryan's not making a video going out with ICE agents and knocking on people's doors. <laughs> so you can see that which yes. part of but Trump's no. immigration <laughs> agenda he wants Hanging to Hanging out outside churches. Throw in. Yeah. <laughs> but Donald Trump might do that. I mean, maybe not, it's not out of the question, right? Yeah, I mean, Trump doesn't seem to see it as any sort of political liability to be completely tied to that. So, yeah, I mean, what, it, what do you think Paul Ryan does tonight, by the way, on the town hall? Oh, right. It's tonight after the president's yes, address. Uh, Paul there Ryan was initially going to be a CNN a town hall CNN at 9 p.m. with Paul Ryan. We're giving them a lot of publicity. In this yeah, show. whatever. We've we've only like pre no, but but I mean, it would now will be air after his remarks on Afghanistan. I do suspect that will shift the conversation though. Now he'll be reacting to Afghanistan, but he hasn't faced the camera since Charlottesville. Um, I think Paul Ryan though we've talked about it. He's been he's gone from being you know one of the most vocal critics of Trump in the campaign to one of his most ardent defenders. <laughs> what, I'm not going to go into is, hypotheticals. Is there a question? <laughs> I mean, I, I think that, you know, people talk about this all the time, almost, you know, in a way to like lampoon Paul Ryan, but I, I have to think it's true. I mean, he has things that he really cares about and he's wanted for his entire adult life. And now he's the speaker and he is a Republican in the White House and a Republican controlled Senate. And on some level, it's like, you want $1.6 billion to the wall? Like, fine, just give me tax reform. Like, let's not get bogged down in the DREAM Act. Let's just, like, get some budgets passed that I approve of. Let's do yeah. something. Um, and I and I think that that's true. I think, you know, I assume he will try to talk about the things that he cares about. And certainly next month is a big month for, yeah. for Congress. Uh, so I imagine that he'll be focused on, you know, showing how hard Republicans are really working to get all this yeah. stuff done. Well, yeah, and I think that that's part of why uh, it's, some of the criticisms that, oh, these Republicans are always voting with Trump are silly because a lot of the things they're voting for are things that they would vote for anyway. They're not like voting for it because of Trump. So, yeah, yeah Paul Ryan is getting a lot of stuff that he wants. He He's going to go fully on board with that. That's not a surprise. I think even in the wake of Charlottesville, you had that question, you know, emerge and it was directed at Paul Ryan, is directed at Republicans. You know, when is enough? When when will you say enough is enough? I do think so. One question I get from Republican strategists is, well, what do you guys want them to do? So I think that's the that's the question that they seem to they 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 haven't seemed to grapple with or or have an answer to because they're not going to impeach him. That much we know. Yeah, so, and our, what should they have done? You know, block the Supreme Court. Right, they wanted I mean, like, what do you want them to do? They're not going to start becoming Democrats because they don't like Trump. Right. Well, it's a fine line. I mean, certainly no one expects them to become Democrats, but it, in order to actually stand up to Trump, you do have to slow your own agenda for what you would hope would be a temporary amount of time in order to get the White House's attention and signal, um, you know, that something is truly not okay. You know, if it's rhetoric on race, for example, um, and so that could mean like. Chuck Grassley saying, we're not going to do any more of your judicial nominations until we see, you know, Bannon and Gorka leave the White House or like set something concrete. Right. Um, I certainly, you know, it's never the right time. Right. So well, I don't think this is going to happen. Before, that's how before you do they departed for recess, you had two bills, both bipartisan in the Senate, essentially seeking to take a preemptive or action um, should Donald Trump try to fire special counsel Robert Mueller, which was the first indication that on Russia they're starting to uh, be, get more than just nervous. They believe there's a real problem here in the White House, and so it's 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 a way to sort of protect Mueller and basically deter the president from taking action against him. Um, 
whether it continues, whether it actually goes anywhere when they return is anyone's guess. Yeah. I remember Russia. <laughs> well, that's, that's that's what I said to Pema when it's she got here. So long. Remember <laughs> Russia? It was only a few weeks ago when uh, Donald Trump Jr. We read all the emails uh, that were frankly read around the world. If it's what you say, I love it about the Russian government having incriminating and highly sensitive information to offer uh, about Hillary Clinton. I, I, I actually, actually, I, I'm afraid that the next shoe will soon drop. But it's one of those stories that you can only keep up with so much with this administration. Um, Girls' Night in the AM, I think, has been pretty successful. Yeah, I've had it's fun. Been fun. Yeah. Maybe you guys should do like a podcast at the bar the next time you guys go out. I mean, this, it would this not. I am not going to talk about politics every time I hang out with these people. <laughs> well, I just we stop hanging out with you. Us having our own podcast. I feel like that's, that I wouldn't mind. We got, a, got a good place to record it right here. We have a good, great. <laughs> we have a pretty good place to record. Actually, maybe we should solicit ideas, guys. If you could tweet us at BP Show, not only about your views on the Trump administration, but if Pamela Levy, Elise Foley, and Sabrina Siddiqui were to have a podcast. What should it look like? What should it be called, too? And what should it be called? Hashtag Girls Night in the AM. <laughs> we have a hashtag, I guess. Um, Elise Foley, you can follow her on Twitter at Elise Foley, Pamela Levy on Twitter at Pamela Levy, and read both of their work at HuffPost.com and MotherJones.com. Thanks for tuning in today. Uh, we'll see you tomorrow and the rest of the week, and hopefully uh, you'll follow my work as well at TheGuardian.com. we got to give everyone a plug. Stay tuned to The Bill Press Show. This is the Bill Press Show.